Oh, that old hymn of the faith was sung fresh and new this morning, wasn't it? I think that's it's the Spirit of God working for sure. Welcome to all of you. For those of you who are guests, we try to work our way through a, a book of the Bible or two on Sunday mornings uh, each year. And we began this year with the book of Job. So if you'd be pleased to join us there, uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament. And I'm um, just going to stop for a second and tell Chuck and Audrey Ward, it's wonderful to see you both in church this morning. Amen. It's been a long journey. I'm praising God you're here, and uh, as well as uh, so many others. And, uh, I keep praying for uh, your good physical strength to continue to be able to come, but it's an honor to see you today among others. I think it's good for us to just begin here um, with a word of prayer, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. So this is one of, those, one of those times, right? Do you remember when you began to learn swimming? And then you were scared to get in the pool, um, but then you got in the pool, and you thought you never could swim, but then you got swimming, and you became pretty good at it, and then you got confident enough to be able to hold your breath and go underwater and see how long you can hold your breath underwater. But then you got even confident enough to not just go underwater, hold your breath, but see if you can get across the whole length of the pool, uh, holding your breath, right? So that's kind of like what today is going to be, right? It's going to be like, we're going to take a deep breath, we're going to dive, we're going to go. Um, and we're really going to try to cover two-thirds of this book in three weeks, okay? Now, understanding that, um, I would encourage you or reemphasize to you that it really is important during the course of the week, if we're going to cover this much ground um, in less than a month, it probably would be behoove, it would behoove us to just kind of sink our eyes and our minds and hearts into this book in our daily reading, so that when we come on Sundays, we can be prepared to learn. Now, why, why two-thirds of the book in three weeks? Because really, two-thirds of this book, the author of Job is really, for a lot of theological reasons, allowing the same message to be rehearsed over and over again. So we're going to preach that message that the author of Job would have for us here under inspiration uh, in three weeks because it repeats itself. And we're going to talk about that, okay? But let's ask God's wisdom as we dive in this morning. Father, we need your help. We thank you for inspiring and preserving your word for our learning. We know Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10, in our time in the dispensation of the church you've you've asked us to consider the old testament scriptures for our learning this is a wisdom book lord and we seek to know your wisdom as we consider not just the truth of this text but appropriately applying uh, the truth of this text our hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, that maybe some assumptions or some false views that we might have of this book, any idea that we have of this book that uh, we come into this sanctuary with this morning uh, could be juxtaposed or maybe put alongside the truth of the text, and, and we can rightly divide this word together so we can properly apply it together and go live it together. Again, as we seek to know your wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, eight years old, we had a deacon in our church uh, and his family. Um, the deacon had passed away of cancer and his wife and children uh, remained in our church. They were 
Um, on 271, going over that long, long bridge that you're familiar with, going south, if you look off to the right, you can see the Boston Hills Brandywine Ski Resort there. Uh, it was middle January. Uh, they had a patch of ice. They spun. They were hit by a truck. It was a horrible accident. Um, among the children, there was uh, three. Uh, one of those children was a very, very dear friend to me, even though we were just eight years old at the time. And um, our family was with their family a lot because back in that day, we probably had about 35 to 40 people in our church. And it was a, quite a tight-knit group. Um, that one friend of mine um, lost their life in that accident. Um, there were five people in the car, and only one was uninjured, and that was the grandmother. When the accident's uh, over, and the car's resting there in the middle of that bridge, Grandma jumps to action. In her mid-70s, she is exuding the strength of someone in their 20s. Making sure everyone's okay. Making sure if they can get out of the car, that they are getting out of the car. Pulling doors open that are bent. Trying to save life that's still living she did some heroic things that evening what we would call what the local paper would record as heroic after the scenes cleaned up and people are hospitalized and, and uh, Libby's body's removed they're at the hospital grandma's being checked over for any potential injury she has none. With amazing strength, she's done some just shy of supernatural things. But in the anxiety of the moment, she has a heart attack. Right? And she passes. I can remember a friend of mine years ago who was working on his car in the garage and, and uh, the jack gave way and pinned him underneath the car and I can remember his wife and children rushing out to, to the garage and in, again, somewhat supernatural strength, lifting the car up so dad could slide himself out from underneath the car and when the emotion of that situation settles, we've got some people that do some amazing things who now are in incredible pain. And they just struggle for a long time. When I think of those two stories, I think of, I think of the life of Job who, in a very, very short time, had some really, really difficult calamity come to his life, but we find him doing and saying some supernatural things. Like, who else in those circumstances would be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Who does that? In that crazy time. Who among us could actually, could it be said of us after that crazy 24 to 48 hours where Job's 10 children are killed and his lifestyle is taken away and his position in the region is removed and he's looked at now as really the off-scouring of the world. Who of us would this author be able to write yet Job did not sin with his lips? That's supernatural grace in an hour of agony for those two verses to be written about this man. But then we dive into chapter 3 like we did last time. And what do we see? We see like grandma in the emergency room who's in utter pain after supernatural moment whose body fails. We see a mom and some children 
right? With some torn muscles in their back, right? Permanently damaged shoulders after a heroic act, saving their dad's life in utter agony and pain. And then dark things start to run through your mind that you never would have thought before. You struggle through those things. You work through those things. People around you, as you struggle through those things that are darker, that don't necessarily define you before the tragedy or calamity, all of a sudden they're part of your experience and people around you are kind of getting a little judgy. A little, wow, that doesn't sound very godly of you, Job, or... And yet the agony is very real. You can be in agony and still be godly at the same time as you work through the agony of the calamity as God superintends the whole thing. By the time we get to chapters 4 through chapters 37, we have Job in this conflict of soul out of his own existence. Done heroically, spoken heroically in a spiritual sense, and now in agony, letting us know what's inside of his soul and his mind and his heart. And these three friends that have come to comfort him that have sat silent for a week, are provoked to speak. So in the chapters 4 through 37, there's 12,000 words of debate. 12,000 words. Talbert quotes J.R. Tolkien in The Fellowship of the Rings, where he teaches, where there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end but two alone may perhaps find wisdom. Tolkien's first statement reminds us of Job's debate with his friends. All speech becomes a debate without end. The second of Tolkien's phrase reminds us of Job's relationship with God at the end of the book. But two alone may perhaps find wisdom. Just God and Job. In God's wisdom, we are asked to consider the debate among the friends before we conclude with the profound, profound simplicity of God's conversation with Job that brings peace and final resolution to our hearts. Moving through these long middle chapters of debate that encompass two-thirds of the book of Job is likened unto Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, stepping through the sloth of despond, as described by Bunyan. He says several stepping stones help the reader negotiate these seemingly endless and circular debates with understanding and profit, which is why they were preserved for us and our learning in the first place. By finding those steps, the weary reader can work his way through this sloth of dispute and come to learn from it. The goal of any author is to be understood and not misunderstood. So the narrator, the author of Job, of the discussions and the debates between both Job and his friends supplies for us some interpretive tools and some concrete clues and all the texts going forward that are going to govern our conclusions. These 12,000 words of debate are given to us in three cycles. Cycles that volley us back and forth between what Job states and how his friends respond. Job speaks three times and his friends respond three times. These three cycles of volleying debate can get comfort, cumbersome. Very long, as many of you have reported to me via text and email as you're working through them on your own during the course of a week. Today, we're going to consider just the first cycle of three 
which is chapters 4 through 14. And we'll consider the other two cycles and some theological conclusions regarding all these debates next week. Here's a proposition I would like to develop that kind of is an umbrella proposition for all three cycles of debate. I believe we will find this to be true by the end of next week, but I'll state it as clearly as I can this morning. There has been an age-old belief that has rattled many generations and split many relationships and families and church families that the old book of Job will reveal to us once again. Because this wisdom book has been long misunderstood and in many cases misapplied, many have missed the central teaching of the larger part of the writing. The central teaching is simply this. There is no connection in life between righteous people being healthy and wealthy and unrighteous people being sick and poor. The truth is, the sickest and poorest person in this room might be the most godly. And the wealthiest person in our auditorium this morning could be the most wicked. For decades in my Christian experience, it has been amazing to me how those who are well off and call themselves Christian take high seats of importance because of the wealth they had while those who are less fortunate, so to speak, never get a seat at the table of spiritual influence. Can you be wealthy and righteous? The answer is yes. Job was before his calamity, remember? Can you be ungodly and poor? Well, the answer is yes. But the main emphasis that the writer of Job is going to wisely put on display for us is that which Job and his friends debate over. Job, you're a mess because you're ungodly. God's brought calamity upon you because you're ungodly. If you would repent of your sin and live righteously, then God will restore your wealth to you, your position to you, and your possession to you. And all three friends debate the same thing. 12,000 words of volleying back and forth between themselves and Job. But before we dive into the debate, I just do want to remind us real quickly about how wonderful these friends really were. Okay? Sometimes we have a tendency to be too hard on the friends, and there'll be some really, really difficult conclusions we come to, but we got to remember... These friends heard about Job's calamity and they came with compassion to see him, sat for a week in silence and mourned with him, right? They had mercy on him when everyone else was departing from him because of his diseased condition, his unclean condition physically. His friends stuck with him. They didn't leave him. So nonetheless, I think what we understand from his friends, about his friends, if you go back on your own time and read chapters 2, verse 11 to the end of the chapter there. And, and you, you read about their sincerity, their, their compassion, their simple way of loving, loving Job. I think the conclusion, one of the conclusions that's very true about this whole book is that you can be sincere in your love for another believer, but can end up being sincerely wrong in how you apply God's word if you really don't know God's word that well. Before we dive into this debate, this first cycle of debate, if you want to jump over to chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3, 
let's remember something also about the context of Job's suffering here. One of Job's first responses, he says, is not man forced to labor on earth and are not his days like the days of a hired man as a slave who pants for the shade and as a hired man who eagerly, wait, eagerly waits for his wages, so I am allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed for me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues and I am continually tossing until dawn. How long did this calamity and the consequences of it last for Job? The plural of months is used here. We're really not completely sure. But we have to understand these 12,000 words of debate are going on while he still has open sores infected with worms crawling in and out of his sores. While he still sits in a, in a rubbish heap of human mess. While he's still enduring the darkness of his agony. These discussions ensue. And I want us to be amazed at how God's grace forms godliness in a man's heart who's suffering through the thickness and the darkness of his calamity. How powerful is God's grace to bring any one of us through anything regardless of the degree of the difficulty. God is faithful to his child as his child by grace strives to value God above all and be formed into his likeness. So as we continue, let's just remember it's been a long time for Job. One author said, suffering or prosperity are not doled out by God because you're bad or good. We need to remember that. We understand the theology of two-thirds of the book of Job. We're never going to desire to profile someone's spiritual integrity by what they have or by what they don't have. We're encouraged to make sure that we're not judging that a believer is good with God because they're well off and someone is out of fellowship with God isn't so rich because they're not walking with him. So let's look at this as a volleyball match and, or a tennis match and the beginning of the debate, Job serves first. That was chapter three. We looked at that two weeks ago. Now the volley back comes first from his first friend Eliphaz in chapter four. What do we know about this friend, Eliphaz? Well, we know that all of his friends were sincere men. They were probably men of renown. They were willing to have their own reputations tarnished by associating and sitting next to Job during this difficult time. But all of these men came with some assumptions we find out through these next 12,000 words. Who wouldn't, by the way? They heard what had happened. They'd have some time to ponder Job's circumstances. They had the long trip to come see him. I can easily see how Job's friends can arrive, not with just assumptions, but even erroneous assumptions and maybe even some erroneous conclusions about his situation long before they see him and they're grieved and they sit quiet for a week. As they arrive... They do absolutely right things. But their assumptions continue to form. I can't say that beginning to form spiritual opinions of any of us, let alone these friends and our circumstances, is necessarily wrong. I think if we were in their same place, we would do the same. But add to their circumstances this. They didn't have a complete Old Testament, let alone the New Testament. 
It would be easier, so to speak, to come to false assumptions, which would lead to their determination to, as one author said, pound a square peg of Job's experience into the round hole of Job's theology. Regardless of offering them some slack, God expressed his disappointment in his friends in chapter 42 and verse 7, where he says, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has, go build an altar and confess your sins. You see, not everything Job's friends said was wrong, but their applications of God to Job's life were. Chapter 40 and verse 2 tells us that Job also said some wrong things, but his conclusions about God were correct. So again, before we dive into the well-intentioned long volleys of debate, they only seem to be adding stress to Job's situation. I think it's good that we understand that these were sincere men, but yet they were just mere men. The best of men and women, the spirit-governed ones among us, if not careful, can be well-motivated in their expressions of love and care for the flock and still quite disruptive to any hurting souls in their unwise, inappropriate application and explanation of God and his word to his people in their difficult circumstance. So, I think that's enough. As we continue on here, We'll look at Eliphaz first, but the first two speeches of Eliphaz and Bildad are received by Job with sincerity. Okay. In his pain, Job seeks to give his misguided friends some slack because he knows they're concerned for him. Job's words and the words of his friends teach us that there was a mutual compassion expressed. And as you've read it, you've probably seen that. By the time Zophar speaks, though, the third friend, Job's had enough. Job's response is offered in chapters 12, verses 2 and 3, and then chapter 13, verses 4 through 12, and it's pretty scathing. We'll look at that a little bit. Possibly there's something in Zophar's tone that triggered a much more passionate response from Job. But nonetheless, let's continue on here and look at Eliphaz first. What about Eliphaz? My friends, I will tell you this to this guy. This guy is no legalist. He's no legalist. His words are quoted in the rest of Scripture as valuable words. Paul quotes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19. The psalmist quotes them in Psalm 94 and verse 12. Solomon quotes them in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 to 13. And the author of Hebrew does the same in chapter 5, 12 verses 5 and 6. His words to Job seems sincerely misguided to us though who know the whole story but they are sincere nonetheless ultimately god uses eliphaz to encourage job to do something that's good for all of us to do look at chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 eliphaz says to job i think the best thing that i would do that you should do but as for me i'm just going to seek god and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. And that really is the key counsel of Eliphaz for Job. But I think we need to understand that Eliphaz, while he's not a legalist, is really somewhat of a mystic. If you go back with me to chapter number 4 and look at verse 12, look at where Eliphaz says he gains his authority in a practical sense, in a philosophical and practical sense. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Eliphaz is having a dream. Dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair in my flesh bristled up. Did you ever have a dream like that? It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. 
And the voice in this dream, it's not wrong. We have to remember that revelation was given at this time, sometimes through a dream. And the voice says, can, a, can mankind be just before God? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? We think of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of course, the answer is no. No man is just before God. Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants and against his angels. He charges error. How much more are those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust and who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken into pieces. Unobserved they will perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them they die yet without wisdom. He's talking about the depravity of man and he's talking about even though a man knows God he can still sin. Job, do you get this? This is the message that I have in my dream. And it's true of God, though the dream's not inspired information, it is recorded for us here as inspired. So Eliphaz, while he's not a legalist, he is but of a mystic, a bit of a mystic, and his, his theology's not as deep as the next two friends that speak. He's kind of a mile wide and an inch deep, but yet he's the first provoked to speak after Job does in chapter 3. And there's some things to learn from him. Job's reply to Eliphaz in chapters 6 and 7 gives no indication that Job assumes Eliphaz is sinful in his motive. His first friend then remains the first to assume that Job is under God's judgment for some sin in his life. And for Eliphaz and the others, their assumptions led to a chief defect in their thoughts and their words. They were not able to understand that Job's suffering by God's grace had allowed Job to unlock the door, so to speak, of his own heart to much larger, to a much larger world of thoughtfulness during his time of suffering. What a powerful message of understanding this is to us at this point. Could it be that the person suffering, even being accused of suffering because of his sin, is actually experiencing God the Spirit by grace, expanding his ability to think properly well beyond the thinking of those not suffering? How much then is there to learn from the agonizing that we all endure as God the Spirit remains our tutor teaching us how to remain loyal to God and have him of most valuable proportion in our life. Regardless, Eliphaz's speech is, again, one of misguided sympathy and therefore misapplied warning to Job. You can read that or have read that in chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5 and verse 7. Eliphaz remains... A reminder for all of us to keep growing in our understanding of God and his word so our theology doesn't remain a mile wide and an inch deep but continues to grow in depth and breadth. And in Job's response to Eliphaz in chapter 6 and 7, what's his response? Well, I hear you, Eliphaz, and I appreciate your sincerity and your compassion, but I'm just going to wait to die. That's what he says in the beginning of chapter 6. My life's too rough right now. I'm still going to wait for God to allow me to breathe my last. And by the way, Eliphaz, all I'm really looking for is a little loyalty from my friends here. Beyond seven days of silence. Job's response really tells us that what Job has experienced is much deeper than just receiving punishment from God for sin. He heard that part of Eliphaz's warning, but it just didn't compute. Something else is going on. This calamity is heavier and the sands of the sea, Job says in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sands of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. God has done something with Job that is far too painful to describe. 
Job says, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. Can something tasteless, he says in verse 6, be eaten without salt? Then he actually talks about the white of an egg. Do you remember reading that? Everyone knows in the auditorium that a hard-boiled egg can only be eaten with a lot of salt. Right? Everybody knows that. How my wife eats those things without salt. She ate two yesterday morning. I was just like, how in the world? Nonetheless, Job kind of says something similar. Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Of course not. Isn't a hard-boiled egg worthless without some savor? So what does Job want? Verses 8 to 13 tells us he just wants death. He wants death. Certainly this is what God has come to do, so Lord, get to it. (laughs) Job's not suicidal here. He just wants God to have his way with his death. So Lord, just hasten to it and get her done. Thankfully, the Lord is wise enough not to give Job what he asked for. What does Job expect from his friends? Just loyalty. What does he say in verse 15 of chapter 6? My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice into which the snow melts. They haven't been loyal. They've been misdiagnosing his situation, and they've been inconsistent. Well, Bildad speaks next. He's a bit more passionate. The problem is he still speaks a little longer with a little deeper theology than the superficial theology of Eliphaz. He cuts right to the jugular and exponentially increases Job pain, Job's pain. What does he say in verse 3 of his speech? Chapter 8 and verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Oh boy, here we go. He's going to challenge Job's theology about God's fairness. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And then he gets even deeper. An actual quote. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Look, your sons are dead. Your ten kids are dead because of your sin and their sin. Ah, well, does, does God judge people sometimes in death because of sin? I, Hebrews 12 says that, 1 Corinthians 11 says even his own people, if they live in unrepentant sin, that's God's business, 1 John 5. But he's saying here, look, they're dead because of you, Job. Verse 6, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. And wow, now he's taken some good theology about God. God is just. God judged just sin. And now he's made it into a prosperity gospel. If you would just do right things, then God's going to make you rich. Job, he's saying you've forgotten God in the midst of enjoying all he's given you. Basically, Bildad is saying that which Satan believed. Job had begun to value his family and his possessions and his position more than he valued God. But unlike Satan, Bildad was giving Job a chance to repent. What a nice guy. And in agony, Job responds in chapters 9 and 10. What does he say in chapter 9 and verse 22? It is all one, therefore I say he destroys the guiltless and the what? The wicked. It's nothing to do with my sin. This has everything to do with how God oversees both the righteous and the wicked. Build that. It's deeper than this, my friend. It's much deeper. Remember, as he takes the broken piece of pottery and he, he scrapes the worms and the dirt and the infection out of his forearm, he's saying, Build that. It's deeper than what you're saying. It's deeper. 
something more is going on and God is too I'm it's too wonderful for me but all I can tell you is I'm beginning to build that understand more and more the the sovereignty of God which will we will find next week will bring great peace to Job's heart chapter 10 and verse 7 if you'll hop over there real quickly in Job's further response to Bildad Job knew he was not guilty yet he trusted the sovereignty of God according to your knowledge I am indeed not guilty yet there is no deliverance from your hand Lord Job knows that God has created him and Job knows that God has blessed him go back to chapter 8 Verses 8 through 12. Please inquire of the past generations, Bildad says, and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because of our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and to tell you and to bring forth words from their minds? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water while it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. Remember, Job, how you got all that you had. Remember how to maintain it. Job recognizes that. But this is not that. So Job is pressed to submit to sovereignty while remaining okay if the Lord decided to take his life. That's what he says in chapter 10 and verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. Sounds like two weeks ago in chapter 3, doesn't it? Well, Zophar has had enough at this point. Friend number 3, he's even probably a bit angered. His speech is the shortest of all of them, but right to the point. He really tells Job to just please quiet your mouth, Job. Job, you're talking too much. Isn't that interesting? Zophar speaks in chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar, the Nabathite, answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boasts silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And basically, Zophar is saying, Job, you sound like you get God. You sound like you're a finite man, but you understand the complexity and the, the fullness of infinity. That's how Job was coming across to, to this man. So he just says, you know what? Why don't you just be quiet, Job, and, and, and listen to wisdom? The wisdom God's given me. conclusion of Zophar is still the same as the others verses 14 and 15 if iniquity is in your hand put it away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear for you would forget your trouble as waters that have passed by you would remember it your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. And then you're going to trust because there's hope. And you would look around and rest securely. Conclusion is still the same. So let's remember, folks, Job's still in physical and emotional agony. He's really at the end of everything about himself and now has nothing and no one left who's loyal to his existence so he responds in chapters 12 to 14 to end 
this debate cycle number one. He's basically telling his disloyal friends, as one author said, go soak your heads. I've really had enough. You still don't get what God's doing here. I'm not sure I do, but it has nothing to do with me and my sin. With some sarcasm, Joe basically says in chapter 12 and verse 2, you are all, of course, self-proclaimed world-class wise men. Whatever will mankind do without you if you die? For wisdom will vanish from the face of the earth when you disappear. Job says in verse 3 of chapter 12, you've told me nothing new or relevant to my situation. Chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, you've actually mocked me. Chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, Job's like, look, I know that God is behind my calamity. Even the beasts of the field would know this, but I'm not suffering because of my sin. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 25, Job launches into a hymn of God's complete and utter sovereignty. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he states to his friends that his convictions are just as sound as theirs. Chapter 13 and verse 7, Job accuses his friends of speaking wickedly of God. They're applying him incorrectly to his situation. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 13, he says, God will judge those who wrongly apply God to his situation. Those who do not apply the impartiality of God to one's calamity are the unwise. Go over with me to chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Job says, So man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave. That you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. That you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. And will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap up my iniquity. What's Job saying? He's growing increasingly into his right mind. From chapter 3, when he's not really in his right mind, he's growing increasingly near the end of this final first volley of debate into his right mind. And he's beginning to say, you know what? I'm not just going to think about my life ending and God taking my life and allowing me to breathe my last. He asks, he asks a question. Can, does physical life end? Does all life end when physical life ends? And he's saying here, but spiritually there's got to be something more after death for someone of true, genuine saving faith. starts to form by the help of the Spirit of God in his mind and his heart, really resurrection language. But yes, all men die because of sin. You know Romans 6, right? For the payment of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not in agony because of my sin at this moment. And he's recognizing, yes, all men sin. And all men die because of their sin. But for me, what's God doing in my heart that I know he's doing in my heart? And he's pressing Job from calamity into some proper conclusion. God has the sovereign right to, yes, bring calamity, but also take my life. But I'm going to live again. I'm going to live again. 
and we'll learn more and more next week. Some other wonderful spiritual conclusions about the sovereign plan of God for his people that bring peace and rest to Job's heart and therefore our hearts in our time of calamity. So remember, folks, as we conclude this first cycle of debate, next week we're going to go through the cycle two and three like really quickly, like probably in less than 10 minutes because they say the same thing. Okay? We're going to spend the majority of time next week just coming to some theological, philosophical, and practical conclusions of a proper way to apply God to a life that's hurting. And remember, we're not well off because we're godly. And we're not poor because we're wicked. We just allow God to be God. And regardless of your socioeconomic status in your family or in your community, you can know the personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who said in his earthly ministry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Proclaiming his own deity at that moment, Reminding all of us, some of you I don't know, that if you entrust your heart to Jesus Christ as God in human flesh and turn from your sin and place your faith in him alone, that you can understand the peace in your heart that Job actually is continuing to learn through his calamity. And no matter what God ordains to take place in your life or that he allows, that in his strength, submissive to his sovereign plan and according to his love you can persevere by his grace I really believe God would have that for everyone in the room if you would just be willing to understand who Jesus is do you know Jesus Job's going to say it later on he knows that his redeemer lives he knows Jesus He doesn't have all the Bible that we have, but he knows the Lord Jesus. Do you know him? I would say that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is is your first step to being prepared to endure calamity in a faithful way. Because guess what? He endured calamity in the most faithful way as he honored his father. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. I thank you so much for this brief study over this first discourse of debate. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will remain open to the teaching of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the message of Job for our hearts. This timeless message for, for our time as we seek to love one another unto Christ's likeness. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.